0: Welcome to the Legally Speaking podcast powered by Kasoon Carr. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the highly impressive Jason Crow. Jason, amongst many things, is a multi-award winning lawyer currently operating as the managing partner of his own law firm, Peace Crow. Peace Crow is a boutique firm specializing in advising developers, contractors, utilities and government entities on complex projects in the US and internationally. The firm, under Jason Stewardship, has represented clients in some of the largest project development and financing transactions in history. And they regularly work with the opposite sides of the largest international advisory and consulting firms in the business. So a very big welcome, Jason. Thanks, Robert. Great to be with you. Yeah, good to have you on the show. Um, And before we go through your uh, amazing career and successes to date, uh, we must start with our customary opening icebreaker question on the podcast, which is, on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the TV series Suits in terms of its reality? Six. (laughs) (laughs) straight to the point straight up six do you know what that's more than what some people have they normally give it anywhere ranging from like a two to a five so six is a a fair result but um look let's take it back to the beginning tell us a bit about your your sort of family background and your uh your upbringing grew up in southern california
1: married very young not really sure what I was going to go do, but academics always came quite easy for me. I think I wandered into the career development office at the undergrad school I was at, looking for a way to very quickly get to a position of supporting a new wife and a, and a family, and um, came to the conclusion I go take the LSAT and see what happened. And that sort of clicked, and off I was to law school, it was on the East Coast in Connecticut, and that was it.
0: Good stuff. Did you always want to go into the legal sector?
1: No, not at all. It was very happenstance, last minute. I was a I was a math major, in fact, as an undergrad, which is a rarity amongst lawyers, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's that's very true. But look, you've um, you've worked sort of, you know, all all over the globe in some respect. So, from your experience, what do you think have been some of the differences you found working as a lawyer in the U.S. versus in the in the UK?
1: That is an interesting question i think I think at the level of practice that that I'm engaged in anyway, uh, which is a lot of commercial, transactional, and in particular finance work, I find that at least historically, I think it is potentially changing probably is changing um, and has been for a while. but I think the legacy of the kind of elite practices on both sides of the Atlantic, you get a little more sort of proactive lawyers playing the, you know, the commercial business side of things out of the US. I think kind of coming, you know, getting more involved with the English practice, not not only here in the UK, but also in other jurisdictions around the world. Historically I have found a slightly more, a more somehow scripted approach to the English practice. But I think that as there's been a lot of, in recent years in particular, movement across firms and consolidation of practices and whatnot, I think that's converging quite a bit. I don't know that there's so much distinction as there once was.
0: Yeah, no, fair fair, fair comment. And, you know, just leading on to your your current practice then and, and the types of clients you work with, do you want to tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, well, it's principally energy and infrastructure. There are some other things that get and smattered in there as well from time to time. And in particular, I do actually have quite a bit of experience in hotel, casino and resort development as well, which that's a whole different story. But, uh, but it's all kind of large project development. I did, uh, I did cut my teeth. And for a lot of years at the big firm, I represented lenders and then gravitated over time towards the developer side of the practice, which is where I find myself now.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you've got a highly, highly impressive CV, you know, from, like you say, from an academic. And you've also worked for the likes of Latham Watkins. And then you, you set up your own firm, Peace Crow. You know, why did you decide to set up Peace Crow? And, and tell us more about the firm.
1: As many things along the journey, as a bit of an experiment, which uh, for whatever reason, uh, maybe I've been been more prone to to do those sorts of things. But this this one was was particularly. Complicated as a psychological and emotional moment for me because I came out of um, Yale Law School and then uh, immediately joined Latham in the San Diego office, and there was a, a person in particular there that I went to work with, and even that was a very last-minute decision. I was um, I was sort of all all signed up and ready to go and start at a competitor firm in New York City where I had spent both of my prior summers uh, getting exposed to different practices. And there were some family considerations that drew me out west. Um, I've never been a particularly huge fan of personally living in the Los Angeles area. So I kind of didn't think it would work. But I happened on somebody that was an initial mentor to me um, out in San Diego, had a great New York-centric practice, and so started there. And when I got going, I kind of considered myself a Latham lifer. And um, really love the firm. I think it's a great place. I um, enjoyed working with the people that I worked with and remain friendly with them even today. So, so why, why leave? It's an interesting question, but caught up, I think, in some personal processes. And to um, 10 years there, uh, I had an opportunity to go do something that was very different. And whereas I had done predominantly U.S. domestic work to that point, this was something big. It was international at the time. It was kind of the biggest uh, the biggest project financing or advertised the biggest project financing in history. And um, when the opportunity presented itself, it was evident that that was not going to work in the configuration with me in San Diego at Latham. And I had been toying with the idea Of maybe setting up a practice, never thinking I would execute those plans, but it was always, well, it wasn't always for a couple of years. It had been kind of a thought that had run through my mind. And when this came up, I don't know, things just aligned and um, it uh, it was a decision I took and here I am today.
0: Yeah, good, good stuff. And so, you know, it's highly impressive what you have done and what you've done with your, your own firm. Would, would you encourage others to set up their own law firms? And if so, what sort of advice would you give to them?
1: So I can only speak to my experience. And what I would say about that is that at least in the space that I'm practicing in, it is incredibly difficult, far more stressful than I ever could have imagined in initially getting going at a point now where I wouldn't do anything different. I'm very happy with, with the way things uh, have settled. And as I say, I I wouldn't have it any other way, but, but it is sure that I did not really understand what was involved in, in getting going. And in fact, I did it twice because there was initially setting up in the U S and then I thought having done it, you know, once before, it would be relatively easy to roll that model out and set up again here in London as we did some four, four or five years ago, I guess. But once again, I completely underestimated what was involved. All I would say to that, and, and I can't speak to other practice types, but in this space, it is very difficult to get going.
0: Yeah. No, and I think, you know, honesty is also, you know, quite refreshing for people to hear. But I think once you do get going, and we'll we'll certainly talk more very soon about how far you and well you you've done with the firm in particular, but just, you know, we can't avoid it. We are we are living and going working in a pandemic at the moment. How have you been effective, um, if at all, in terms of your legal practice because of COVID-19? We've been quite busy, but I think the
1: nature of the work has certainly been different. I forget who, who it was, but a couple of days ago, I was reading that um, somebody at the at the Federal Reserve, uh, I don't think it was Chairman Powell, but it was somebody who was saying, uh, we're in a once in a hundred year event, and then maybe even that's not right. But if anybody says they know where this is going, um, you know, they're crazy. This is just, there's no model to predict this. And that certainly seems to be kind of the sense, um, the sense that we have, People, the, the people we work with are largely still working, working remotely, still engaged with clients, and it's still very much a desire to kind of get on with the energy transition and projects. But with, with uncertainty comes a bit of pause.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, let, let, let's let reflect on a lot of your successes and, and let's tell some of our listeners about there because you have been, you know, recognized and won a number of awards, distinctions, you know, so which ones are you most proud of and and, and why? Well, I would say
1: more amused than anything else. It's been a wild ride, but a couple of years ago, we ranked 13th in the Global League tables just behind Sullivan and Cromwell. And that was... That was uh, interesting while it lasted, and you know, who knows? Maybe at some point we'll do it again if the right deals align. But I would uh, venture to guess there's maybe never been um, an instance when a team this small has kind of done something like that. It's been the big deal work, and that's something, quite frankly, I didn't expect when I started. I knew we had kind of one big thing, and um, what I had expected was a lot of smaller things and a lot of very um, US-centric work to follow me based on relationships that I had developed while at the big firm. And in fact, very little of that materialized. In fact, I can't think of a single matter that has carried over from any of those relationships that we've done since I set up the firm. And it was so all-consuming very quickly on the, on the one big project initially that by the time I knew it, that was the space that I was traveling in. And all of a sudden I was, you know, better recognized by the project finance practitioners in London than then back home. And um, that led to a series of uh, unforeseen additional circumstances. And we ended up doing kind of bigger deals based on initially based on the personal relationships that had come out of the first one. And I didn't anticipate any of that, but it's been, what are we now? I think we're, in 10 years of practice, I think we have roughly a half dozen deal of the Year awards, and I've spent the better part of the last decade, I think virtually you know 80 plus percent of my time is working on transactions that are you know multiple billions of us dollars, if not tens of billions. and so the smaller stuff that had been my staple early on um, is a much smaller portion now of the practice, and I think that all has just been incredibly surprising.
0: Yeah, and a, and a testament to you and the and, and and the team. I think it's fair to say you you've significantly punched above your weight and done ever so well to get to where you have done today and I think you're you're sort of highly highly regarded in the market. So, you know, congratulations awesome. to you and all, all the team. And you don't Thank sit still. Um, you know, you do sit on a number of boards and committees as well. Do you want to sort of tell us a bit more about some of those as well and some of your advisory work?
1: Oh, well, it, <laughs> yeah. A little bit true to form it's all over the place and i i um, I probably you know put myself in a category of people, and there are a number of us that respond to external stimulus by needing to go do something so gotten to know some some very interesting people that are involved in some of the vaccine development work happening in response to the pandemic, and that arose you know, just as a, as being a curious human being and feeling in a moment of crisis, like I need to do something. And, um, and I sort of put myself in that group. I think there are probably different responses that different people are kind of wired differently to, to encounter in response to crisis. But for me, it's the need to do something. And this has been a particularly difficult scenario at a personal level, um, setting, Business considerations aside, from the perspective that for many of us there hasn't really been much to do other than not do anything, so that's been really hard. But I did, I did ultimately uh, happen on some folks that are involved in vaccine development, and just by being curious and offering to help, that's um, that's led to a a lot of these things. Going way back, I mean, one of the things that we do particularly well. Is um, is nuclear power and nuclear power uh, development, new projects, and both in the conventional large scale space, and then also in the kind of newer small modular and the advanced reactor space, um, where we're getting increasingly involved. And when I think back to that, and you mentioned you mentioned other activities, I mean that came about through through an initiative to try to get involved in nonprofits and actually to set up a nonprofit, which ironically never got off the ground because it got too mired. In the US, there's uh there's a slight complication in in nonprofit law where activities that that go too far in the direction of lobbying are excluded from consideration as uh, charitable or nonprofit entities. And so we were skirting up on on that issue because so we were we were involved in some significant government conversations, but that became quite kind of an interesting thing. And that all arose during the, uh, the credit crisis. And it's just been that way as things, as things change and the environment changes. And at that point, and this was still back at the big firm, um, the world slowed down for a minute. And for me, the way to, the way to push through all that is to stay curious and inquire and, connect with people and make new relationships. And I've always been amazed at how receptive business and even government leaders are to that curiosity and that intellectual capacity to bring new thought or um, creativity to problem sets. And um, I think being passionate and interested has opened a lot of doors. Yeah
0: no absolutely and and it's clear that you love to give back um i think you've touched on some of it there but just to sort of flesh that out a little bit because um as you were talking about um sort of non-profit so i know a while back that like you were referring to you were uh, you thinking of maybe relaunching you know a non-profit platform yeah you know, i think you said there's potential plans you know it's a platform designed to discuss all the sort of factual aspects of nuclear the good the bad the ugly and you know the role in that for energy transformation so do you want to talk a bit more about that
1: yeah absolutely so it's an area that i am i am passionate about and i'll be a little bit careful on how i say this <laughs> but you know having cut my teeth in a in a very lender and investor oriented role at a big firm in the us at a time when the renewable uh, wave and wind was uh, was kind of emerging from a obscure novelty into all the rage, and I was just processing, you know, deal after deal, as many of us do as associates. Until at one point, it kind of all clicked, and I I stepped back for a moment, and I well, I guess I'll just say it. So I thought to myself, you know, this this kind of doesn't make a lot of sense to me because the the way that I found the government to be subsidizing those projects seems so inefficient and so disingenuous to be perfectly frank. And, and as I thought more about it, and this is just, um, the whole, um, I mean, so much of the U S renewable industry was built on monetizing tax credits and in a, in a super high level nutshell, for those that aren't familiar with it, it's basically, um, giving massive tax credits to IPPs and developers that simply don't have the income to use the tax credits at all. And so instead of using them, they sell them on Wall Street. And so they're sort of fungible units that through... I mean, look, this is where you know it gets interesting. You have to structure your way around it in, in pretty complex ways. But fundamentally, what what you're doing is just selling those on at a discount. And as I thought to myself, you yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really seem to be a particularly um, intelligent way to do this. What's this all about? And then I sort of thought about the politics of it for a moment. And I, I said to myself, well, yeah, I guess, um, I guess it is probably politically much more expedient to talk about a tax break for green development, as opposed to Giving out grants to an energy, a type of energy technology that is otherwise non competitive. I kind of get that. But at the same time, adopt from the Treasury perspective, a dollar of foregone revenue is really no different than a dollar of expenditure. So, you know, aren't we being somehow dishonest and disingenuous just for political expedience? And that didn't seem quite right. And so that prompted, again, this intellectual curiosity. And, um, started looking into it and picked up on these really academics that were talking about the fact that even with all the renewable development, you know, we're just not going to get there. And I happen to be very pro-energy, and I also am a believer in the reality of climate change and carbon pollution and the need to do something about it. Now, back then, I think if anybody had told you you'd have a completely renewable grid, I think anybody would have probably said that it was fanciful and crazy. Uh, today, obviously, in certain places, that seems very achievable. But even still, even if you were to solve all of the electricity generation needs with renewables and storage, you still have massive heat requirement, process heat for industrial application that today, is a bigger contributor to carbon emissions than the electricity generation. So wind turbines don't produce heat. So at least not not at the levels that are needed for industrial applications. So it it remains a kind of a critical problem. And And I got into nuclear because I believed what the scientists at that point were telling me. Long conversation, but I did get plugged in with a lot of scientists in the US predominantly. Some academics, some at the Department of Energy Laboratories, and once again, just wonderful people, very welcoming of a much younger version of myself back then, but enthusiastic, kind of intelligent, committed intrigue and into the whole thing and um, and so that that prompted this journey and i w- you know I will say that having now Worked in this space for, for over a decade now, um, and having been heavily involved in some of the leading projects around the world, uh, it was a bit disheartening for me, being a big believer in the science, to be confronted with the political and economic realities that the large-scale reactors are just near impossible to get done. And of course, we see what's happened here in the UK with um, the faltering of some of the projects that that had been um, had been slated to move ahead previously and it just requires so much government support but i am once again very enthusiastic about the evolutionary technology and the direction that science is taking this industry and the gen 4 advanced reactors advanced fuels the kind of stuff that Bill Gates is working on through TerraPower and similarly here in the UK, Moltex has a similar molten molten salt technology. And that seems to be the way of the future. If we can ever, ever get commercially deployed, this stuff is safer, it's cheaper, it's competitive with gas. If you believe some of the numbers that was, was talking to some of the developers that are involved in this, you can have you can have effectively the same power plant run at 30 megawatts and scale up to 300 just by changing the pump speed on the pumps. And so load following and all the other issues that you think about in running a grid becomes very achievable. They're smaller. They just fit better and, uh, and cheaper. So, and and modular. So a lot of this stuff is factory built. And if we can get the licensing right and, if we can move that within the industry out of the space of being a very futuristic kind of science experiment and into actual commercial deployment, it's amazing how much good this can do, I think, for, um, for the planet, for, for the environment, for all the challenges that we face.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm really well put. So. You know, I think we, we wish you all the best of, of of luck with kind of making that and kind of connecting all the dots. It's it's not very, very straightforward as as it was seen, but I think it's a wonderful initiative. So from from all of us, we kind of look forward to watching your journey um with that. And I guess just as we look to to sort of conclude, Jason, what, what sort of tips would you offer to your younger self? Or we have a lot of more junior listeners that listen in as well. Is there anything you would sort of offer from your legal experience and background that you would you would share with others well
1: not from my legal experience or background but it is at a at a personal level and at a business level um yeah i absolutely would and i think i think it's a couple things i think it's um i think it's just this thematic point of being intellectually curious and keep moving and the world is so dynamic i mean if you think about you think about the situation we're in today, and I know a lot of people, I'm, I'll digress a moment as I, <laughs> as I so frequently do, but you think about, you know, so people say, well, after the Spanish flu came the roaring 20s and after the great depression came the industrial revolution and all that's very true, but we're in such a unique, which, which by the way, is, is an important point in and of itself in the sense that nothing's ever really as dire as it seems. And it's important to remain positive and just keep pushing ahead. You never know what's around the corner, but it's also so dynamic and so changing. And even as radical as those shifts were from negative to positive and things change in a moment, it's so different today because of how interconnected we are. And I I got to thinking about this the other day. And yeah, all those examples are completely relevant, but we've never had the ability to all see what's happening everywhere in the world at the same time and respond in unison with the same response. And I don't think any of us really know what you know what the results of this whole experiment in global lockdown is going to look like in the long term, but I do think that there's a lot of room for optimism. You're starting to see global leaders talk about new deal era economics and I think even Joe Biden was on the cover of Newsweek the new issue out with express references to FDR and you hear about the administration here in number 10, potentially announcing something big in July on infrastructure spending. And I mean, we, you know, you never know. We may be on the cusp of the greatest expansion, uh, economic expansion in, in history. So being prepared for it, being, being adaptable, being responsive to the environment, Trying to count the cost better, that's probably something I did not do well. And it certainly, uh, if I take myself back to the moments of challenge and getting this thing off the ground, there were some really tough times. And I i wished I had maybe been more thoughtful about the downside risk. But then even even understanding that to also embrace the capacity of... of just human ingenuity and and whatever's inside of you know inside of yourself i think i think we are absolutely emerging into a new era where as younger generations take positions of leadership there's so much more open mindedness than i've ever seen before and anybody that i know i mean i sometimes have this conversation with my mentors who are now almost all retired and it's an amazing thing to see In a way, the world's become far more institutionalized, and it's very, very difficult to break into that environment if you're in a setting that is highly institutionalized. But at the same time, I think there's so much more creativity and open-mindedness than we've ever seen before. So that spirit of entrepreneurialism and kind of going out and trying something different, uh, the, the downside needs to be well understood, and it's not something that I did well. Um, but at the same time, even had I understood it, it's not really as bad as it seems. And there's always a brighter corner and, um, things tend to work out. So go for it.
0: And I love that. There's some real nuggets of wisdom in there, Jason. And I'm I'm gleaming from that. And this is myself as a sort of fellow entrepreneur, you know, one thing's for certain giving up means it's the end. I think staying intellectually curious, having that positivity, you know, having the right people and mentors around you keep going because, you know, things will get better. But life isn't a straight line. There's always going to be challenges along the way. And I think if you can kind of find a system to embrace those challenges and always find those solutions, I think you'll go very far. So that's really, really great that you've kind of shed light on that. And I think as we wrap up, you know, just generally, you know, it can't all be work. It can't all be pro bono. It can't all be everything that you're doing. You know, what do you tend to try and do when you do get a down moment? What do you like to do sort of just to, to sort of switch off and relax?
1: So my son and I do a lot of fishing. We've got a uh, very large fishing boat uh, docked in San Diego that hasn't been used in far too long. So maybe at some point we'll get a chance to do that. And I collect and work on old American cars.
0: Nice, nice. Well, I recently just got back, well, very long time ago now, I should say not so recently, but Cuba. And I was there and I was just fascinated with all the, all the cars over there. So what are you, uh, what are you currently working on?
1: I just finished up. In fact, it's now the third time it's been done, but um, 1965 Chevy Chevelle, the old post car, not the Malibu, but um, I didn't make too many of those. But that was the first car that I ever did uh, with my father. And so it has a special place in my heart. And um, it was getting, even after having been done a couple of times over, it was getting, getting on in years. So we just finished that up once again.
0: Well, listen, I think we should make a unique... Uh, for all the uh, advertising, our production team, I think for your episode, for the branding, we're going to have to have a picture of you in the uh, in, in the car, right? That's just what it's going to have to be. Yeah. Um, yep. so yeah. We're going to make sure we can make that happen. But Jason, on behalf of all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for um, for coming on. I think that's been really inspirational, really insightful. Um, yeah, You're in a really interesting area of law. I think we wish your law firm Peace Proud lots of continued success and all of your non-profit ventures. And hopefully we'll see you future again in a not too distant future.
1: Very good. Thank you.
0: Cheers, Jason.